Hello, and welcome back to another episode of EP Architalk, the official podcast of the AIA New York State Emerging Professionals. Just a reminder to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review. Since AIA New York State's theme this month is Community is Strain, we thought Baxter Hankin would be a great guest for our podcast. Baxter Hankin is a graduate student of real estate development at New York University, originally from Connecticut. He received a degree in architecture from Syracuse University in 2020 and worked at Robert A.M. Stern Architects. Given his time spent in Syracuse, Baxter has long been considering what it would take to prepare potential climate receiver places for the future. This prompted him to found the Climate Receiver Places Project at Place Initiative, where he both manages this project and serves on Place Initiative's board. So let's get started. Welcome, Baxter. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. So I wanted to start off with where are you joining us today from? New York City? Yes, I'm joining today from New York City. Okay, great. Well, I hope you're keeping cool. So I just wanted to get started with asking you a little bit about your origin story. Where do you come from? How did you get here? My origin story, I've wanted to um, be in the architectural industry for a very long time. I'm one of those people that, that knew that I wanted to do architecture since I was a little kid. I would draw floor plans and, and such as a kid, probably inspired by the fact that I grew up in a house built in the 1700s. So I was very inspired by the old architecture and the, the way they built things. So throughout growing up, I was also very politically inclined as well. I, would, um, I was very interested in public policy and I often acted upon them, started various projects on the side of my goal in working in architecture. And then when I was studying at Syracuse University, I started to think a lot more about climate change. And I started to think a lot about how Syracuse is in this really unique position where it may very well escape some of the worst impacts of climate change. So it might receive a lot of incoming climate migrants, refugees from, from climate change. And I was thinking, how can this place prepare better? Because they're certainly not preparing as well as they can now for that kind of growth uh, in a sustainable way. And I kind of put that idea in the back of my mind for a little while, uh, worked in architecture after graduating at Robert Stern Architects in New York City. And then eventually I attended a conference with the Congress for the New Urbanism. And there were some people talking about that same concept that I was thinking about for years, which is climate-induced migration and how will certain places prepare for the risks of climate change as well as welcoming climate migrants and refugees. And I connected with that group. It happened to be a group called Place Initiative. And I joined and from there, I started the Climate Receiver Places Project as sort of a part-time volunteer effort. Quite the story. So I just wanted to take a step back and ask you about your childhood. I promise this is not a therapy session. <laughs> <laughs> 
Although if you feel like it is, then maybe that's not such a bad thing, right? Because it means you feel comfortable being here with us today. But you said that when you were a kid, you used to draw plans. Was there anybody else in your family that was in architecture or design? There really wasn't. My dad had previously been an engineer, but he wasn't anymore civil engineer. But I just uh, really um, was a very imaginative child. I had a lot of imaginary friends as a kid, and I had to draw them all floor plans of their houses. So that's kind of where I started. And then when I was in fifth grade, my parents got me uh, some software for my birthday, Chief Architect. So I played around with that a lot as a kid. And then in middle school, I ended up entering an architecture competition for middle school students with my friends. It was called School of the Future. It was hosted by National Association of Realtors. I'm not sure if it exists anymore, but we got to the national competition, had a great time in Washington, D.C., and got to present our school design with all its very sustainable features. So all of those things really kept pushing me towards wanting to be in the architectural industry. Wow, that's interesting. I don't know many parents that would necessarily buy their fifth grader chief architect (laughs) after seeing them drawing so much. You know, that's pretty good that your parents saw something in you pretty early on and investigated more about it and about what they can do to sort of fuel them. So that's excellent. And you said that you grew up in a house that was built in the 1700s. This is in Connecticut. Yes, it's in Connecticut. It was built in 1780, an old farmhouse. It had a lot of character. You could really uh, be inspired by the architecture growing up in something like that as a kid because it was different than every other building around you, every other friend's house you went to, uh, very different than school. It had a lot of quirks and unique features to it that really made me very aware of architecture. Yeah. And so you decided to go to school up in Syracuse, architecture school in Syracuse. So how did you find your time at Syracuse? Did you enjoy it? Were you really, really super focused on climate change pretty early on? I wasn't really focused on climate change much for most of the time while I was at Syracuse. I was I was involved in like a student organization policy think tank a bit while I was there, but we were mostly looking at affordable housing and other issues. But I became more and more interested the longer I was living there, the more that I started to really feel a connection with the city because the first few years in Syracuse, I didn't really venture too much off of campus. But later in my education, I started to explore the city more. And I did a thesis where I proposed a new neighborhood design in the city centering around the uh, upcoming highway teardown in the city center. And through that process, that's really when I started to think about climate receiver places, because I started to think about ideas surrounding how sustainability and climate change played into the city around me because I was thinking about that city more because I was sort of more in tune with what was going on there in those later years. Yeah. Wow, that's great. As somebody who went someplace totally different from, I was born and raised in Brooklyn and I went to school in Miami and it was a completely different landscape. (laughs) 
<laughs> in general. So I totally understand that feeling of not exactly connecting with the place, you know, when you go to school immediately, but eventually after you sort of get used to it, wrap your mind around it, I completely understand what that's like. Although I can't say that I did anything as important as what you started to do and started to focus on. <laughs> I was more focused on the easiest way to get to the beach. But why don't you tell us a little bit more about what climate receiver places are? You spoke a little bit about climate refugees or, excuse me, climate migrants and climate-induced migration. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about all of that and the concept behind Climate Receiver Places Project? Sure. So Climate Receiver Places Project, it exists within Place Initiative, which is a public policy organization that operates in the intersection between climate change, social justice, and urbanism. And within that, the Climate Receiver Places Project is our biggest project. And Climate Receiver Places are communities with lower climate-related risk that are well-situated to receive climate migrants in terms of geography and urban form. And a climate migrant is someone who has been displaced or is moving proactively due to the impacts of climate change being worse in other places. Someone who's a climate migrant or refugee may be moving to a climate receiver place because where they're moving from might have issues with drought, wildfires, sea level rise, and various other issues that are out there. So these climate receiver places that have a lower risk in terms of climate change relatively to the other places, they are going to possibly see a massive influx of people. And they're also going to see their own challenges that they're going to have to face because nowhere is going to be completely spared by climate change. They're going to be facing those issues plus growth all at once. And they're going to have to figure out in advance of this happening, how do we do this sustainably? How do we welcome people? How do we really make sure our community endures in a very positive way where people are still able to sustain themselves on local resources? That's pretty interesting. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what a climate receiver place is? Yeah, so a climate receiver place is a couple of different things. First, it is a place that happens to be in the right geography to have reduced climate impacts as compared to other places. And we did some data analysis here. We looked at risks at the county level in terms of water stress, sea level rise, wildfires, heat, wet bulb temperatures, farm yields, rainfall and flooding, hurricanes and economic damages. And then we zoomed into the local level and looked at things like localized flooding that weren't picked up in county level risk scores. And then additionally, we believe that climate receiver places should be resilient places that have quality urban form already existing where they can be compact, walkable, transit-oriented communities that are sort of efficient on their use of resources per capita while not sprawling too far into the farmland surrounding. So those are some of the things that make a place qualify or not to potentially be a climate receiver place. But then there's the other side of things, which is that a climate receiver place 
also needs to follow through on planning and strategies and implementation of the principles of climate receiver places that we've put together and the goals that we've put together in order to make sure they're not just well-situated in terms of their geography and existing urban form, but also that these communities are actively planning for the future and putting into place policies that ensure a better future rather than just saying, we're in the right geography, come move here. That's not what we're about. So basically a, a climate receiver place is a place that you have along with place initiative, you've studied many different facets of data in order to know if this is a place that can actually accept climate migrants. We've looked at data basically on climate risk scores for various climate risks, like the ones I listed, and are using that as a prerequisite for a climate receiver place. But in order to actually be a climate receiver place, they should also follow through on good governance. We don't want to call somewhere a climate receiver place if they're in the right place, but they're not governing sustainably or resiliently or in a welcoming way to refugees. How do you differentiate some place that has, let's say, a good recycling program in a town and they also collect rainwater? You know, like, how do you actually determine whether or not this place is following through on those things that they say they are at a level that would accept climate migrants? So that gets into some of the other parts of our project. The data part sort of sums up what I was just talking about, sort of sums up what the first document of the project, the Receiving Geography Guide, is about. Our second document is the Community Principles Guide, where we've gone through various goals and principles and some next steps that communities should follow. And we really try to cover a lot of different issues of quality urbanism resilience, being welcoming, having good governance, equity, affordability, and access, regional focus and partnerships, resilient infrastructure, good governance, high quality built form, connected communities, resilient economies, environmental sustainability, and hazard risk reduction of local climate risk factors. And within all of that, we try to touch upon really all the major things and many of the minor things that communities should consider in order to be a good climate receiver place. And right now we have partnerships with a couple of communities that we're working with, and we are going back and forth with them in discussion, starting to put together some tools for implementation and assessment to be able to really understand how do you identify the strengths and weaknesses of these communities where they need to focus and then afterwards how do you identify where they've improved and where they haven't to sort of be able to start that process all over again so in order to determine which communities are really following through on this and which aren't we're putting together a series of a few different documents to assess communities one of which is sort of a scored checklist going through all the points and subpoints of the community principles guide and the other one is going to be 
a more general list of several data-driven metrics per principle that communities can look at a little bit more objectively. So hopefully those help us in the process. Thank you for telling us about those points and the documents that you're still working on. I'm, I'm curious to know, first of all, how do you identify a climate receiver place? Like, do you have a hotline that people can <laughs> sort of call in on? Or So in order to identify places that could potentially be climate receiver places, that was a very intensive process. We put all the data together. And then we basically narrowed down the counties that included climate receiver places. And within those counties, we went onto Google Maps and we searched around on Google Maps, trying to find every last community of every size that has some semblance of quality urban form. So that took a while because manually we came up with over 2,500 places on our list and on our map. And from there, we have been seeking out partnerships with various communities from that 2,500 plus community list. Some of those partnerships come from the Congress for the New Urbanisms. So we were present at the Congress for the New Urbanisms conference this year in Oklahoma City. And we had discussions with various officials from climate receiver places across the country, and some of them were interested in working with us, and a couple of those partnerships have actually begun, and we have teams working on trying to implement the very early stages of this project in both Flint, Michigan, and Rochester, Minnesota, and we have other teams that are looking to form in other places as well. That's pretty interesting. So right now you have a base of about 2,500 places on your list, or is that where you started? But then after doing your initial data, <laughs> you've sort of whittled it down to like 500. No, it is 2,500 places roughly on the list. We did a first pass of looking at maps and looking at data. And that first pass at everything gave us like 620 places. But we've since expanded that. And the reason that number is so high is because many of those places, I would say the vast majority of those are tiny, compact farming towns in the Midwest. And we didn't want to only look at big cities. We wanted to look at communities that we believe have the potential to be great climate receiver places of any size. So that's why there's 2,500 on the list. But most of those are few hundred, few thousand people. I was sort of thinking as you were saying that, I would imagine knowing very little about this, that a lot of the places where you might find climate migrants would be in a big city. And maybe that's not the case. You can tell me if that's sort of incorrect thinking. It's interesting that you say that a lot of farming and more, I imagine, rural places are maybe better climate receiver places. I don't know if that's a term that you would use, <laughs> better, best. But like I come from the city and I wouldn't exactly necessarily want to live on a farm in like Iowa or something like that. No offense to Iowa or farms. But how do you then place 
climate migrants with appropriate climate receiver places? And how do you get climate migrants to join the list and apply for visas and whatnot? Right. So we're not saying that smaller places are better. It just happens that using our criteria in the areas that we're looking at and with communities that fit our criteria, that there just are more smaller places because there are more towns in the country that are a thousand people than are 200,000. So we still have plenty of big cities on the list. None of the climate receiver places on our list go above a million people, but there's some that get close. Some of the larger ones on our list include Detroit, Charlotte, Seattle, Portland, Buffalo, Pittsburgh, Minneapolis, Atlanta, and many others. So there's not really a a bias towards the small towns, but we do think that smaller places are places that have the potential to be very resilient in climate change because as we've seen with the COVID-19 pandemic, when there are shocks to the world, supply chains can get a little bit iffy. And some of these smaller places may actually in the long run be better suited to live off of the land in the same region. And some of the larger cities may have issues providing for their own food without complex supply chains as reliable over long distances. So it's really hard to tell what the future will hold for different sized places. But we think that all places on the list, large or small, have the potential to be great climate receiver places. I'm a city person myself. I wouldn't want to live in a town of a thousand people either, but there's a lot of advantages to them anyways. Yeah, it sounds like it. I was just wondering though, about how long does the process take for you all to make this assessment? You know, you have your criteria and it sounds like you're still developing more and more criteria for different, maybe typologies, different types of places, because I imagine that your criteria that you're coming up with for a small town of 600 people is probably going to be different to see whether or not they're following up and acting on the principles than it would be for a town of 20,000 people. And again, I could be wrong about it, but how long does it take for you to actually do a full assessment of potential climate receiver places? So we don't know how long that assessment for an individual place takes yet. We haven't done one yet. We're still developing the process to do it. That is the biggest item on our agenda right now that we're working on. And those assessments that we're doing are, I should mention, working with these particular communities because this project has a very local focus. Place Initiative is also looking at trying to implement some of the ideas of the Climate Receiver Places project, more state and national levels. But this project is pretty much entirely focused on working with local communities that are Climate Receiver Places at the municipal and regional levels of governance. In terms of different principles and different strategies for places of different sizes, we do emphasize that each place is unique. Uh, It could be based on size. It could be based on 
geography. It could be based on economy. It could be based on whether the place is currently growing or declining. It could be cultural. There's a lot of different things that factor into making one place's approach necessarily different than another's. But the general principles that govern all of these different places are essentially the same because whether we're looking at large places, the largest on our list being Columbus, Ohio, or if we're looking at small places, I don't know the name of the smallest place on our list because I think it has like 20 people. But whether we're looking at those large or small places, we're interested in places that are compact, walkable, gridded street systems. And in terms of rural places, we're looking at places that are urban in some sense. And in terms of the largest places we're looking at, they're also urban. So they follow the same general principles. We're not looking at rural places where you have all the houses spread out far from each other. And if we were looking at those kind of places, then the principles would be very different. But even the smallest towns we're looking at have a block system, just like the biggest cities. So they all sort of operate on similar systems. It sounds like you work very much in conjunction with the Congress for New Urbanism, which when I was in college, by the way, one of the founding members, Elizabeth Platter Zyberk, she was the dean of my school. So I learned a lot about new urbanism <laughs> from, from my time at the University of Miami. But it sounds like you work a lot and very closely with the Congress for New Urbanism, which makes sense because their principles are very much in line with you know, sustainable communities. Are there any other groups that you work closely with in order to get this done, like especially on the local level? Are you working with local government entities at all to understand a little bit more about what kind of policies they have? Are you working with local organizations as well? Right. So we are working with other groups. We work closely with the Congress for the New Urbanism because Place Initiative is an affiliate organization of theirs. We're a separate organization, but very closely aligned with uh, what they do and other groups that are also affiliates we collaborate with as well. And in fact, uh, you mentioned the University of Miami. We have the chair of our organization, Place Initiative, uh, is a University of Miami alum, uh, Camille Cortez. So uh, there's that connection there. And there are a lot of University of Miami people within New Urbanism, so it shouldn't come as much of a surprise. But we do work with other organizations as well. In terms of local groups, in Flint, Michigan, we're working with a nonprofit that's interested there in implementing the Climate Receiver Places project locally. In Rochester, Minnesota, we've had conversations with some public officials. And there's other groups that we're starting to partner with beyond local scales. For example, one of the members of Place Initiative's board, Garland Woodsong, is representing Place Initiative at the World Urban Campaign, which is part of the United Nations. So we have some sort of partnership brewing there and currently looking to partner with others at other places, learn more from them, collaborate with them at both local and local scales. What is your ultimate 
goal for climate places initiative would you love to see it go global i would love to see it go global we're starting here in the lower 48 states of the us we already have some interest in canada because we've got some members of place initiative in canada but we're starting here and we want to expand the goals of the climate receiver places project are really three main goals we want communities to be able to be resilient and thriving so through our project communities are able to really become better places to live in a climate change scenario and be able to better respond to crises and stresses that would impact quality of life we want to make sure that climate migrants and refugees have somewhere to go that we are helping communities be more resilient and welcoming towards receiving them and have a plan for how to receive them we also want to make sure that communities are able to survive in a world of climate change there will be a lot of places that are abandoned a lot of places that may fall apart due to economic and social and environmental pressures and we want to avoid that in as many places as possible and beyond those three an additional fourth one is to really make sure that places are able to live within the means of their local and regional resources and this fourth one is actually the reason i started the project in the first place because when i was in syracuse i saw that the region around syracuse is very driven by farmland there's a lot of farmland that's very productive in that area and i saw that the city was sort of over a number of decades being emptied out and people were moving to the edges of the metro area into sprawling suburbs that were destroying farmlands and were destroying natural lands and if the city was planning for being able to be more self-sufficient and if the region was planning for that as well in terms of being able to feed people with local and regional agriculture especially in the long term of climate change and growth from climate migrants then there would have to be trade-offs they wouldn't be able to have as much sprawl into the edges of the region because it reduces the usable land resources for agriculture and that's very important in this scenario when you want a lot of people to be able to migrate to communities like Syracuse and all these other ones on our list where in order for that to work there has to be enough farmland remaining to feed all those people and in order for that to work you have to promote policies that lead to more compact communities and inward growth rather than outward growth it's very interesting because in in some ways this entire initiative and project can be seen as creating future cities like a little futuristic if you get down to thinking about it but you know right now happening right now if we don't start now and we probably should have started like 30 years ago right but if we don't start now then you know it'll be way worse than what's happening here so how do you feel like you're doing in terms of meeting like the 2050 goals for climate change what's in the immediate future I, i should ask not just in the far out future like 100 years from now but what's in the immediate future for the climate receiver places project 
in the near term, I think before things get really bad, and they are already really bad in some places, and we need to acknowledge that, but before they get really bad, where migration is really en masse, places need to change their policies, become more resilient, become more welcoming, manage their resources better, and all sorts of different things that we outline in our work in order to be prepared when the worst impacts of climate change do happen and when migration really ramps up a lot more than it is now. But what I described is also in the near term, a lot of those impacts of climate change, a lot of migration, that's already happening already to a large extent. There's already been wars and unrest in certain parts of the world that have been triggered by things like climate change induced droughts. And we're already seeing a lot of migration right now due to climate change within Central and South America. And all of this is causing migration to a lot of climate receiver places. For example, I remember reading an article, I think it was in the New York Times, where after a hurricane in Puerto Rico, there were a decent number of people that recognized that this is only getting worse. And they picked up and they left and they moved to Buffalo, which was broadcasting itself as a climate receiver place, or as they like to call it, a climate haven. And on the flip side of that, there's also a lot less people leaving climate receiver places than there would have been otherwise. A lot of these places on our list are places that have been declining in population for a number of years, sometimes decades. And there are people who are from there who are now saying, I don't want to leave because we're safe here from climate change. So they're reversing decline. And then there's other people coming in and it's really already started. So I don't think of this issue as being in 100 years. I mean, certainly it'll be much worse in 100 years, but I see it as today. I think you're absolutely right. I recognize that you've been working on some recent projects here in New York State. Can you tell us a little bit more about some of the work that you're doing more locally in our state? Work that I'm doing locally in, in New York State in terms of this project? Uh, yes. This is your job, right? Like you work on this or is this just like uh, something that you do when you're not working your full-time job? So... <laughs> I am currently a grad student. I don't have a full-time job at the moment. I was doing this while I had a full-time job before. There was a point at which I was doing this. And this project for me and everyone who's part of it, at least for now, is entirely volunteer-based. We're looking to change that because in order to scale, we really need to pay people. But for now, it's entirely volunteer-based. There was a point that I was doing it at the same time as both working and part-time going to grad school, and that was a little bit insane. But we don't really have as much going on specifically in certain local places in New York with this project. A lot of our work is really building out our national resources and then collaborating with the various communities around the country none of which yet are in New York State, but we may have a, a community that we're working with in New York State somewhat soon. So stay tuned. Okay. And that was my fault for reading my information a little bit too quickly. <laughs> so you're currently a graduate student at New York University for real estate and development? 
Yes, for real estate development. Real estate development. <laughs> yeah, I'm studying real estate development. I had a great professor in my undergraduate studies at Syracuse University who taught an intro to real estate development course that was sort of aligned with an architecture studio course. So we figured out all the finances of how to fund and make money off of the studio project that we were designing. And I found it really interesting. So when the pandemic hit, uh, right as I was graduating and I couldn't get a job, I uh, decided to go back to school and learn more about real estate development. And it's been a fantastic experience. Yeah, that's great. And I'm sure that it'll be helpful in the climate receiver places project into the future because it'll only be helpful in identifying different places. And also, I imagine the different kinds of things that you can do in order to develop those places to be, again, I don't know if this is a term that you use, but in order to be better climate receiver places or more efficient climate receiver places. So that's great. I wanted to ask you also, like, what's next for you? Because if I'm guessing you're almost done with your graduate program? Yeah, I'm almost done with it. I was doing it part-time, so it's taken a little longer than I thought it would, but I'm done at the end of this calendar year. So what's next for me is, as I mentioned, during my time at Syracuse, I really wasn't too attached to the city at the beginning, but in my later years there, and especially once I did a thesis on redesigning a neighborhood in the city and interviewed something like 40 people in the city about what they thought that should be and what that should look like. Once I was doing all of that and really exploring the place more, I became pretty attached to it. So after I graduate from grad school, I'm planning to try to go back there and work in an architecture firm. Wow, that's great. And what do you feel like is something that the rest of us can do in order to help identify a climate receiver places? Is there something that the rest of us, if we want to get more involved with this, do we contact place initiative in order to get involved with more of the policy side? Can we do things like bring this to our own communities? What are some things that the rest of us lay people <laughs> can do to sort of help in any way? Yeah, great question. So there's a lot of things that you could do. I would sort of start with the webpage for this project within Place Initiative, which is placeinitiative.org slash project slash receiver dash places slash. From there, you can get to um, a few different things. You can explore all of the ideas and all the documents of the project that we have so far. You can also click a button that says join the project in which you can join our email list. You'll be invited to our meetings where you can help volunteer and help us put together the materials of this project and work with communities. If you want to bring it to your community, you click the button on that page that says become a climate receiver place. And there's a contact form 
where you can reach out to us and we'll respond and, and start working with. And there's also other things people can do outside of being involved with this project or working with us from the community that they're based in. You can also just do things within your community if it's a climate receiver place and even if it may not be as great of a climate receiver place by looking through our community principles guide, identifying some of the things that can strengthen your community and trying to implement those at a local scale to prepare your community for what's to come and really just prepare your community for everything. Because at the end of the day, these principles of climate receiver places are also just principles of resilient communities. So any community in any situation can benefit from, I'd say, most of them. Yeah, all of that should be available in our show notes, those links and whatnot. So thank you very much. I wanted to just ask you now a few fun questions, but these are very important questions to ask. So if you're ready. Yes, I'm ready for the fun questions. <laughs> Perfect. So pancakes or waffles? I would say waffles. Waffles with berries and whipped cream? Sounds pretty good. Yeah, I'll go with berries and whipped cream. Berries are awesome. Yeah, <laughs> that's how I like my waffles. Cake or pie? If it's ice cream cake, then cake, but otherwise pie. Or cheesecake. Cheesecake's good too. Okay. So anything else you'd prefer pie? Right. Except those two kinds of cake. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> okay. Uh, what's your go-to karaoke song? I don't think I've ever done karaoke. Missing out, Baxter. Which I believe one of the other guests of the podcast said as well. But if I had to, maybe I would go with Viva La Vida by Coldplay. Okay. All right. Nice. I like it. Horoscopes. Are they BS or fascinating? They're BS. Sorry. So you don't read your daily horoscope from Susan Miller, no? I don't know who Susan Miller is. Well, I guess you can tell what my answer is if I know. <laughs> <laughs> I would suspect the opposite answer. Nothing wrong with that, just not for me. Yep, I get it. I get it. I find it a little bit of both. Pineapple or no pineapple on your pizza? This is a controversial one, so... I am a... Very staunch believer of no pineapple on pizza. Coming from Connecticut, we have the New Haven style pizza there. And the best pizza topping is uh, clams, which may sound strange. I don't know. We might get our most feedback from that answer because I have never heard of New Haven style pizza, number one. And I've never heard of clams as a topping. It's just as old as New York style pizza. And for the New Yorkers who don't believe me, go over to New Haven to try it out. Ah, wow. So clams is New Haven style. Well, that's like their signature pizza topping that they have there, but there's a lot of other characteristics that make it New Haven style pizza. Oh my. Okay, you just blew my mind. I don't know if I can get to the <laughs> next question. <laughs> wow. Okay, this is an important one. Is a hot dog a sandwich? Um. Yes. I could go either way on this one, but I'm going to say yes, because I've had the hot dog bun fall apart into two pieces before. So then it's definitely a sandwich. But you know what? Even if it doesn't fall apart, it's still bread, meat, and 
toppings. So that kind of does make it a sandwich no matter what. And sometimes when you get like the hamburger buns, obviously I've thought about this quite a bit. Sometimes when you get the hamburger buns, they're attached too. So I don't know that a disattachment of the two pieces of bread necessarily makes the line between sandwich or not sandwich. I think that it's the fact that you have meat toppings between two pieces of bread. I don't know. I could go either way on that one, but sadly I can't eat bread. So does the sandwich have to have bread? That's another question. Okay. I'm going to have to think further on that one. You're surprising me today, Baxter. You're absolutely surprising me. Now I'm going to have to like ask some follow-up questions on my next guest because, wow. So do you say pecan or pecan? I say pecan. Pecan? Yes. But I don't really say pecan very often. So I really only say it when someone asks me the question. (laughs) Oh, no, you're never asking for pecans? (laughs) Not really. (laughs) No pecans? You don't find that that's a part of your regular routine in life? (laughs) Not so much. (laughs) I don't either, actually. So there you go. Well, thank you so much for being here today, Baxter. It was a pleasure getting to know you a little bit and to learn more about the Climate Receiver Places Project and also Place Initiative. I hope that we'll be hearing more and more from you into the future. And I'm sure we will because you seem like you're very determined and this seems like an excellent project. So thank you again for being with us. Thanks, Felicia, for having me on the podcast. That does it for this episode of EP Architalk. Just another reminder to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And we'll speak to you next time. Bye.